Well, said it before, but welcome to City Life. Good to have you here with us tonight. Uh, my little Raj snuck in during announcements. He's here for the first time, so I'm slightly distracted. But uh, thank you all. I just want to thank y'all. <laughs> he knows how to ham it up already. But uh, thank you guys. I mean, it's been a crazy season for us. Steph has been stepped out of service for over a month. We had to go to China, or China, <laughs> again, distracted, my boys over there, India for two weeks, and uh, I was out of the pulpit for a month, but the church has been amazing. Again, like we talked about before, not only was I able to get away, but we've grown in those weeks where we were gone. So it's just a powerful testimony to everybody here. And not only that, uh, but we do meal trains for people that uh, are just in a crazy season, and we've been uh, the recipients of meals, and I thank you for that because food is like my love language. I believe that God gave us 10,000 taste buds because he loves us, and food is that unspoken sixth love language. And so Raj and his parents, Steph and I, we've been doing a lot of adjusting, like his sleep cycle AM became PM, PM became AM. So we were nocturnal for a few days where we would wake up at midnight, feed him his morning bottle, and start our day and just begin watching stuff, right? Uh, other stuff kind of got pushed towards later. Like we've been feeding him just on the couch. We didn't have a high chair. So I throw him on the couch, turn on planet Earth, and feed him. So something we started this week is we finally got a high chair and he's eating with us at the table because we want that. We want, when we get older and we have kids, to all come to the table together, not go to our bedrooms or the couch and the TV and eat separately because there's power to sharing a meal around the table. Sharing tables for a meal is uniquely human. Trust me, I watched planet Earth. There's no animals out there in the world that pull up a bunch of chairs to a table or, or gather around a table to dig in and serve their dish of dinner. And sharing tables with other people, it reminds us that there's more to food than fuel. We don't just eat for sustenance, we do it for communion. You know, there's a, a pretty famous painting, actually it's one of the most famous paintings of all time, it's called The Last Supper. It was painted in the 15th century by Leonardo da Vinci, and it commemorates perhaps the most significant shared meal of all time. It's one of the most celebrated, studied, and replicated paintings that's ever been created. It's so ingrained in our culture that so often advertising or, or movies or just imagery takes from it to add weight to their imagery. Like right now, right now on YouTube, the number one trending video, it's a music video by a hip-hop artist, and in that video is a reference to The Last Supper. Here in 2017, you still see references to The Last Supper. But you can mix the characters all you want. Characters of The Sopranos, that's been done. Star Wars, that's been done. Game of Thrones, that's been done. Even The Simpsons, like they just spread the characters around the table, as you would see in that picture. No matter how much you remix it, though, the, the, the pull of the original is found in the character at the center of that image. Jesus, the man who sits at the center of that table, who sits at the center of that painting, sits at the center of history. The Messiah, the Christ, the God-man. And these disciples were sitting with the king ushering in his upside-down kingdom of grace. And the way he would carry it out after that meal, with his arrest, his death, and his resurrection, the very events we're about to celebrate at Easter, that would forever commemorate the moment captured in this painting. I love this, this scholar, N.T. Wright. He says about Jesus that when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. And after 
the, this meal again, Jesus would go on through the passion and the events of Easter. But I love that it's called the Last Supper. And it's one of the last things he does before he's arrested because it parallels and it echoes the way he came in to his ministry. There are three verses in the Gospels that say the Son of Man came and then fill in the blank. There's three of them. They look like this. The first is Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 19.10 says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And then last, Luke 7.34 says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. It's kind of like the skits on Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other, right? (laughs) Jesus was into eating and drinking. So much so that people accused him of being a glutton and a drunk. Luke 7.34 in its entirety, it reads like this. It says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. For example, this verse walked out. It happens in Luke 19. It's the story of Zacchaeus. Maybe you're familiar, where Zacchaeus is trying to get a look at Jesus as he's walking by, and Jesus basically walks up to the tree and says, hey, guess what? I'm inviting myself to your house for dinner, so get ready, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to visit you tonight. And he shares a meal. He meets with Zacchaeus, and it's there that we get the verse, Luke 19, 10, where he says, hey, I come to seek and save the lost. But Luke 7, 34, again, it says he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In Luke 19, 10, we get the why Jesus came, to seek and save the lost. Luke 7, 34 explains one of the ways how he came to do that. He had many methods, but one we see again and again in the Gospels is to share a meal with somebody. So often in the Gospels, he's either coming from a meal, he's at a meal, or he's going to a meal. Or he's inviting himself over to somebody's house for a meal. One New Testament scholar, Scott Barchi, he said, It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. But on the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation, it opened the way to reconciliation. You see, when Jesus shared a table with somebody. He wasn't just doing lunch. He wasn't just doing dinner. He was doing theology. He was doing the theology of grace, the theology of reconciliation. God's amazing grace was all over his guest list. There's grace in his guest list because it wasn't the usual suspects. It was unexpected people. It was unusual people. By most definition, unusual suspects. Last week, we started a series called Unusual Suspects, and we're looking at profiles of grace in unexpected places. And like Rahab last week, they're profiles that mirror ours. They're people whose stories of their encounters with grace, they mirror our encounter with grace and with Jesus Christ. But I don't want to go to the Gospels tonight. I actually want to go to an obscure character in the Old Testament who shows us the grace and power of a shared table. He didn't share a table with Jesus, but ironically, he shared the table with one of Jesus' forefathers, one of his ancestors, King David. And his name was Mephibosheth. And I preached on him years past at City Life, but this week, God helped me see his story through a new filter of grace. And his story is found, if you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, and then 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. 
You can turn to chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, while some of you are trying to figure out how to spell his name. I'll put it up on the screen. And others are trying to find 9, verse 1. I'll read 2 Samuel, chapter 4, verse 4. It introduces Mephibosheth for the first time. It says, Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him, and he became crippled. So at five years old, Mephibosheth loses his father and his grandfather in the same day and the use of his legs all in the same day. Stripped not just of his royalty, but of his ability to get around. A fall from this nurse's arms as she ironically tried to save him doomed him to a life of of being disabled. Once the child of a prince, the grandson of a king, he was a crippled mess. He once had everything he needed, but crippled and unable to walk, he no doubt lived off the charity of others. In a world dominated by power politics, he went from a bright future to no future. He was a broken man. And every day you can imagine he would wake up and his legs were a reminder of his status. But, you know, some days we might not be able to relate to that. But spiritually, we're all Mephibosheth. We've all fallen. We've all been crippled by sin. Romans 3.23, it breaks it down clearly when it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not those who have it good, they, they figured it out, and those that are sinners. No, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Spiritually, we're all like an old person from those old Life Alert commercials, right? I've fallen and I can't get up. I've just aged myself. I know Anthony would get that because his sermon, he talked about how many commercials he saw as a kid. But when I was young, those were on all the time, right? I've fallen and I can't get up. That's us spiritually. The question is, are we alert to it and are we crying out for help? Because there are those that will insist, man, I've got it all together. I'm okay. I'm fine. But then there's others that realize, man, I need Christ. I need God. I desperately need grace because I'm broken and I'm crippled. But the question is, do we cry out for help or do we go into hiding? See, Mephibosheth, when we find him in chapter 9, he's hiding. We're going to read chapter 9, verses 1 through 13 right now. It says, one day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, the king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Macher, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Macher's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. 
Zeba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table, like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And from then on, all the members of Zeba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. Come on, you talk about profiles of grace. That's a powerful picture of grace. And I'm sure just even reading it, you begin to see yourself in it. Because, again, we've all been broken by sin. And when we're broken by sin, one of our first reflexes is to hide. Not only was Mephibosheth crippled, but he was hiding. Not only was he ashamed to the old throne because he was crippled, but he was a threat to the new throne. You know, it was common in those days for the, the new king to wipe out the line of the old king, to make his dynasty legitimate. And for example, in Mephibosheth's family, David proclaims himself king over here, and, and Mephibosheth's uncle, he proclaims himself king over here. And finally, assassins sneak into Mephibosheth's uncle's house when he's sleeping, stab him to death, and take his head to David, thinking that they're doing David a favor, when in fact favor says this is, this is pure evil, and he has them killed for it. But chances are Mephibosheth only heard that, hey, your uncle's been killed because he was claiming to be king. I mean, could Mephibosheth even close his eyes in peace? Or was there just constant fear? You realize when you're reading this story, the last thing Mephibosheth wanted was to be noticed by King David. So he hid. And I love that the Bible doesn't say he did it in the boonies or the sticks or in the middle of nowhere or the wilderness. It gives the name, the name Lodabar, which means a place of no communication, a place of no pasture, it means no communion. From the very first sin in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, we see that our reflex as human beings when we sin is to hide. It's ironic because I don't think there's anything less productive than trying to hide from an all-present, all-knowing, almighty God, yet we still do it. We try to keep it covered up, and we end up covered and caged in guilt and shame. What often blocks God's grace and our receiving of it is not his hesitation. He freely gives grace upon grace. It's often our hesitation. You know, I was talking to a gentleman a while back who just stepped into a moment of accountability. He called two other gentlemen, and they called me just to confess, right, that there was something in his life that he wanted to bring to the surface. And it was a powerful moment. It was a moment where I was so proud of him, you know, that, that he could bring that, share that, and he did it with this guy, that guy. And I finally said, have, have you gone to God? Have you prayed? accepted his grace? Have you accepted his forgiveness? And he said, no, I haven't because I, I don't feel like I can step into God's presence. I don't think that he would want to even meet with me. And man, that's such a lie from the enemy. Such a lie. Because God doesn't reveal our sin to shame us. God reveals our sin so that he can change us. And the only way we can do that is if we come to him. God's grace covers our shame. Jesus died publicly in shame so that we don't have to suffer privately in ours. He went to the cross, a shameful death in public for us so that we don't have to suffer privately in our shame or hide away or stay away from him. But sometimes, man, we can wear shame like earplugs that drown out God's voice as he says, hey, come to the table. He throws this invitation to us like David did to Mephibosheth. But no matter how much we drown it out, it's there all the same. It's throughout scripture. We are Mephibosheth. We've been crippled. Sometimes we hide, but we're also called. See, Mephibosheth was called by King David. We're called by God. Finally, that dreaded day came to fruition. Somebody came knocking and said, hey, King David wants to see you. 
And for all the reasons stated, that was probably the last thing Mephibosheth wanted to hear. You can imagine how terrified he was on that journey because we had to put ourselves in his shoes. David wasn't just some king. This was a warrior king. He was like Muhammad Ali and Bruce Lee, like on the battlefield. He was a bad dude, right? And this is the king that is, in Mephibosheth's eyes, his enemy. And he's just called him to come to him. Mephibosheth couldn't even walk. David's this powerful warrior king. It's this infinitely helpless person before what's seemingly an infinitely powerful king. But it's powerful because grace really can't be fully received until we realize how undeserving we are. Grace takes humility. And we see Mephibosheth, when he comes before King David, he's on his knees. Now, this probably isn't very different from many of his other interactions because, again, he was crippled. He probably had to rely on other people and ask and beg for people to provide for him. But he assumes this position before David, ready to beg for his life. And it, but expecting judgment, he finds grace. More accurately, grace finds him. You know, sometimes I think we can get this picture that, that we extend the invitation to God. Like, like this was our idea of salvation, and we invite him in. And we use those words, yes, but really God initiated it. Romans 5.8 says, hey, while you were on the floor saying, I've fallen and I can't get up, while you were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says that in Romans 5.8. He didn't wait for us to get it together. He went to the cross so that he could come to us in our shame at our loader bar and say, hey, come to the table. I see you're in a place of no communication, but come to a place of communion. He died so he could invite us to the table, not just to clean us up and beat sin, as awesome as that is. Grace calls us out of shame. Grace calls us out of hiding. But I think sometimes our view of grace begins and ends with a, a prick of the conscience, and then we, we go we get before God and we deal with our guilty conscience. We lay that down. Maybe we cry out to him. Maybe we cry tears, but then it's back to life as usual. Grace doesn't come just to cleanse us, as awesome as that is. The end game of grace is communion. The end game of grace is communion with God. Mephibosheth, he was called out of a place of no communication, no communion, and he was called before the king. It's the same for you and me. But in Dave, David, in chapter 9, verse 7, he says, I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. Now, if he stopped there, that's all he said. That would still be amazing grace and generosity. That, man, I'm going to take you out of hiding. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to establish you with all this property, these servants under you to provide for you. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He says, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. He could have left it at, I'll give you your grandfather's property to bless you. And it would have been, again, incredibly generous. But he says, I'll, I'll not only give you a fresh start and take you out of hiding, but I want to take it one step further. I don't want to just clean you up. I want to step into communion with you. I don't want to just, just correct a crummy situation. I want communion with you. I don't want to just bless you. I want relationship with you. Come out of hiding. Come to my table. Step into communion. And it's powerful because David says that to Mephibosheth. God says that to us. As we're in guilt or shame or hiding, he says that to us. He gives us grace, grace, cover us to cleanse us. That's powerful. That's the what of grace. But the why of grace, why does he give us grace? So that we can enter into communion with him. So we infinitely helpless, broken people can stand before an infinitely mighty and holy God and have relationship and have communion. It says 
in Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The imagery is that of coming to a table and being filled. God invites us to that. And I love that in verse 11 of chapter 9. It says, from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. How many times do you think one of David's men, though, grumbled about his dinner company like the Pharisees grumbled about Jesus, Jesus' dinner company? It's unlikely, right? Unexpected dinner guests. Kind of like when, when uh, what is it, Han Solo shows up at Cloud City, Darth Vader's at the dinner table. That's unexpected, right? In, in, in the Gospels, you see Jesus sharing the, the table with quote-unquote sinners. No doubt the Pharisees thought, man, how can this be God in the flesh if all his guests to share a meal are God's quote-unquote enemies and sinners? How could that be? And no doubt some of David's men might have said the same, man, Mephibosheth is of Saul's line. That's a threat to David's throne. How can he invite him to the table with himself, David? But what's powerful is when you look at King David's life. David had spent many years himself in hiding, waiting to be king. As Saul chased him, looking to take his life. It was a rough season for him. He wrote many psalms in this season. And one of the psalms that he wrote in his lifetime was obviously Psalm 23. Many of us have heard it. But a key line in that chapter 23 is that he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. From this perspective of how God had prepared a table for him, even amongst his enemies, he could invite Mephibosheth and pay it forward and say, hey, I want to show grace. I want to restore somebody. Who can I restore? That's what we see him doing in chapter 9. You know, Jesus says in the gospel that those forgiven a little will only show little love, but those who have been forgiven a lot, man, they'll show love extravagantly. It's the same with grace. If we can grasp the depth of God's grace, we'll share it all the more freely in our lives. Once we realize the grace we've been given. And again, there's grace in the guest list. So the question for us, we've talked about all this stuff that deals with us as individuals. As a church, the question is, man, who is on your guest list? Sharing a table signified reconciliation. Grace is for ultimately communion. Communion with God and so that we can have communion and reconciliation with one another. But too often, as we talked about last week, the church can become exclusive instead of inclusive. That, you know, like come if you've got it all together, not come as you are. The church should be God's model for illustrating and sharing grace with a broken world. But too often, man, where Jesus seemed to be like a magnet for the broken and those that needed grace, the, the church seems like we've somehow reversed the magnetism. To where somebody who's not living right would say, well, I don't want to go to church. I'm just going to be shamed there. But where the church may have lost some of its luster and appeal, grace never does. Grace is good all the time. And the church is most appealing where grace is made most apparent. Like I said last week, that's why I'm proud that, that we have a reputation as a welcoming church. People, I call them every week, the visitors we've had, and they're just like, yeah, I felt at home there. I felt welcomed there. And I like that because, man, the church needs to be a place where people can pull a chair up to the table and get a taste of grace, where people can pull a chair up to the table and belong as they come to belief in Jesus, that they can pull a chair up to the table, come out of hiding, come out of shame, and just taste grace. Again, you don't have to get it together to come to communion with Jesus. You come to communion with Jesus so that he can help you get it together. Trying to get it together before you come to Christ is futile. But we come to Christ so that he can help us in that. That's the power of grace. And, man, it's not a, a light switch or a microwave or a point A to point B, but that's okay. 
There's grace for that. Let's be serious. Jesus spent three years in the flesh with the disciples. And when we get to the Last Supper, right, this, the culmination of this three years, the disciples still don't have it all together. Jesus is sharing a table with a man who would deny him three times and another man who would flat out betray him. Yet he shared the table with them. He, he took communion with these people. He pulled a chair up to the table with Judas, knowing that Judas was going to betray him in hours. Maybe in your life you feel like, man, I've denied Christ. Maybe not with my words, but with my actions. Guess what? <laughs> There's grace. Still grace. In, in Revelation, as God is writing these letters to these churches, as he's making these statements to these churches, he rebukes a church that had all but forgotten him in Revelation chapter 3. He says to them, look, you say I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He's saying you're a lot more like Mephibosheth than you think. But he goes on to say right after that, look, I stand at the door and knock. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and we will share a meal together as friends. There's power in that invitation. Because as we've been talking about, sharing a table with somebody and a meal with somebody, that's a step towards reconciliation. What's powerful about pulling a chair up to the table for Mephibosheth? His shame was rooted in the fact that he was crippled. He was the crippled grandson of a king. But when he pulled up to that table, that table covered his legs. His legs were out of sight. The same way grace covers our shame. Are we still imperfect? Absolutely. Do we still stumble? Sure, we live in our flesh in the midst of a broken world. But when you stumble, you don't have to go find your Lodabar. When you stumble in sin, you don't have to go into hiding. Because Jesus, again, he died publicly on a cross, suffering shame so that we don't have to hide and suffer privately in ours. He suffered public shame so that we don't have to suffer private shame. So come out of hiding. Come to the table. From the Old Testament to the New Testament to the accounts of heaven and revelation, God invites us to a table. In the Old Testament, it's the Passover table. In the New Testament, it's the communion table. In the book of Revelation, it's the banquet table, the, the wedding between Jesus and the church, this wedding feast, and there's grace in the guest list. Jesus is passionate for people that admit they have problems. How awesome is that? That's good news if I've ever heard good news. Jesus is passionate for those that admit they have problems. He asked, man, who can I invite to the table? Who can I restore like David asked at the, be the beginning of chapter 9? Who can I show kindness to? It's Jesus' heart. Where we expect judgment, he shows grace. You're a Mephibosheth. We all are. The question is tonight, where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself in, in Lodabar? Or are you at the king's table? Are you in a place of no communication or are you in a place of communion with God? Because God invites us even tonight to step out of a place of frustration, of self-hate, of feeling eliminated, and to pull up a chair and experience grace again. If I could have the worship team come up, I want to spend some time in worship. So there's a minutes carved out at the back end of this service to do this. But again, we're all Mephibosheths. We might look different, come from different backgrounds, but in the profile of Mephibosheth, I knew that was going to happen eventually. I made it almost to the end of service. It's a tongue twister. In the profile of Mephibosheth, I'm going to enunciate my words. In his profile, we all 
see pieces of ourselves. So maybe situations, maybe circumstances have, have crippled your walk with God, where things have happened to you and just bitterness, the, the why me's, right? The, the if only, like Mephibosheth, he thought, man, if only my, my grandfather wouldn't have died, if only my father wouldn't have died the same day, if only the, the, the woman trying to save my life wouldn't have ironically dropped me. Like all these why me's, why the, all these if only's, stuff that happened to him that made him bitter, that put him in a loader bar. I don't know what's happened to you. I don't know if it's sickness that's struck you or people in your family. I don't know if it's broken relationships where you just feel forgotten or frustrated or forsaken. But come on, you don't have to stay in Lodabar. Maybe your, your communion is with worry and fear where stuff just keeps happening that seems bad. And you just think, man, that's probably what's right around the corner. So your relationship, your, com- your communion is with fear. Your communion is with anxiety. Man, I want to pray that God would show you tonight, surprise you tonight with the grace you need to step from Lodabar to the table, to step from a place of no communication to a place of communion. David has this prayer in Psalm 51 that I love and I repeat so often, man, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Why do I have joy of salvation? Because I experienced grace for the first time. Come on, I pray that tonight we would remember the goodness and the depths of God's grace that we needed because it says in Ephesians, like those quote-unquote sinners. We were all there. That was all of us. But maybe situations tonight, as we continue to reflect before going into worship, maybe your load of bars because of your own sin. Maybe it was one public, shameful sin. You've been in load of bar ever since. Maybe it was sin after sin after sin, small as we measure them. There are no sizes before God, but just those, those sins again and again to where we begin to feel crippled. Like, I can't come before God. We're like Mephibosheth, where God would call us into his presence tonight. We'd be like, what do you want with a a dog like me? But when we expect judgment, we forget God's grace, his awesome grace. Be surprised by grace tonight. That no matter what you did this week, this year, God sent Jesus for you. God is passionate about you. No matter whether you're in Lodabar or communion with God tonight, he has a future for you. That's the beauty of God's grace. So as we step into worship, we're going to sing it as well. Because no matter where we are tonight, we can say it as well because God still extends that invitation. Come to communion. Come to the table. I love that we we celebrated communion earlier tonight. Maybe in that moment you were like, yeah, you held back because you never stepped into God's grace. Come on, I want to give you another opportunity. But come on, there's many of us where... We've come to God before, but in a lot of areas of life, we've stepped into Lodabar, a place where we've isolated ourselves, we've hidden ourselves, because that's our reflex. When we stumble, when we fall, so often our flesh pulls us into high. Come on, remember tonight, God says, hey, come to the table. The table is a symbol of reconciliation. It's a symbol of grace. So as we worship, if we could stand in this moment, let's step back into communion with, with Christ our King. Lord God, I ask tonight that as we sing these words, it is well. God, we will remember why it is well, how it is well, because your grace, it never runs out. It never runs dry. Lord God, that we can step into grace again tonight. We know that the spirit and the bride say, come. Come to this this feast that as Isaiah said in the Old Testament, he actually says in Isaiah 25, years before Jesus would come and share meals with this person and that person, he says, in Jerusalem, The Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. 
will be a delicious banquet with clear well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. Come on, the Lord has spoken. He's extended grace. Come on, let's respond tonight. As it says in Ephesians 1, 6, he's adopted us into his family through grace so that we can praise his glorious grace.